0: The New Testament reading is taken from Titus chapter one, verses one to four. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, And let's pray again together. Father, we thank you for your most holy word today. We desire, Lord, to be your students and for you by your spirit to be our teacher. And so grant us ready hearts, ears to hear and eyes to see. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, may they be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we begin today a new, a new series, a new sermon series on, um, on the book of Titus. And I've been praying throughout the summer, asking the Lord uh, where we should go in the church, where we need to be as a church, where I need to be as a pastor, and where I feel that you need to be as a people. And I, I came to the con- conclusion that where we need to be as a church is uh, in the pastoral epistles. Um, And I think this is important, uh, especially in the season that we're in as a church uh, and in the season uh, that I'm in as your pastor. And, uh, you know, the pastoral epistles, this is 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. They're quite unique. (laughs) They're written by a veteran pastor to young pastors. And they contain a whole lot of wisdom and a whole lot of encouragement. Um, a whole lot of reproofs, um, a whole lot of warnings, a whole lot of wisdom for how we ought to be the church um, in the 21st century. And really, they're written for pastors of church plants. They're written for people of church plants, churches that are young and churches that are working through the throes of church formation. And these throes, these growing pains... They contain and they represent a lot of difficult stuff. You get a sense when you're reading through 1 and 2 Timothy that Paul is deeply concerned that Timothy's just going to give up. Timothy's going to throw in the towel and give it all up. And he has to remind Timothy, even as he encourages him as a spiritual father, and even as he charges him multiple times to keep holding on, Timothy, keep holding firm, Paul reminds him constantly that his call to ministry and his call to this church plant is a call to suffering, and it's a call to great difficulty. The church, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, is plagued. It's plagued by people, and I quote the apostle now from 1 Timothy, who have a craving for controversy. And they've got a craving for quarrels. These people, Paul says, in the church produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and they produce constant friction among God's people. And Timothy, this young pastor, he's trying to cope with it all, and evidently he's deeply harassed by his fears, and he's worn out through all this opposition. And the situation is very similar for Titus. What we learn of Titus, we learn from the epistles. He doesn't appear in the book of Acts like others do. Even so, Titus, like Timothy, was highly prized by Paul. He's a Greek convert, and Paul deems Titus to be his own spiritual child. Paul calls him his partner. Paul calls Titus his fellow worker, and he trusted him. He trusts Titus, and it's clear from uh, 2 Corinthians at least that Titus was a great joy, and a constant joy to the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul trusted Titus so very much that he takes him to Crete to establish the church on that island. And it's not an insignificant island. Crete is about 260 kilometers from east to west. That's like going from here to Hope, a little bit beyond Hope, Bridal Falls maybe, you know, Kelowna the Bridal Falls. That's a long way to go. That's a long way to go on foot. That's a long way to go sailing, sailing around. It's it's not a small place. And Paul brings Titus to Crete to plant churches. Now, we're told in Acts chapter 2 that when Peter gives his great Pentecost sermon and he preaches the gospel... We were told that there are many people around, foreigners, who've come to Jerusalem and we're told specifically that there were Cretans there listening to the gospel from Peter. And so it's highly likely that these listeners had already gone back to Crete and that the faith had already been spreading there. But now Paul takes Titus and he comes to Crete to give what is spreading a certain form and a certain shape, because just because something is spreading... It doesn't mean it's going in a very good fashion. And so Paul brings Titus to Crete, and they're there for a time, but for whatever reason, Paul leaves. And he leaves Titus alone on Crete, and he leaves Titus with a certain mess. Things are not right. It's an embryonic work, it's a beginning work, but it's in something of a disarray. There's a certain disorder on creed. We see this especially in the latter part of chapter one. Paul begins to spell out the trouble. There's trouble in these churches. There's opposition, especially through what Paul calls self-appointed teachers, teachers who've come up through the ranks without apostolic approval. Paul uses the word insubordination. You'll see it there in verse 10. These teachers who don't want to be ruled by the apostles and by those that the apostles appoint. And so Paul says very simply to Titus, Titus, these teachers must be silenced. you got to put an end to this, Titus. Oh boy, that's a big job for a young man, isn't it? All by himself. Paul's off somewhere else. And so Paul says in verse 5, Titus, I've left you in Crete so that you might put what has remained into order and so that you, Titus, can appoint pastors in every town. Now you can see the ecclesiastical order here. There's the apostolic office with an appointed leader under him who's given the authority to appoint pastors and to oversee them. Titus is very much the bishop of Crete, working under the apostolic authority, A bishop now who is appointing pastors in various churches around Crete and who's given the supervisory rule over them. It's the diocese of Crete, as it were. And Paul now, he writes this letter to Titus to encourage him and to guide him through the challenging moment of walking these young churches of Crete through significant opposition and seeing these churches brought into good order. Now in this way, this epistle of Titus is especially relevant to what we're doing at Christ Church. We are a young church plant that is trying to put things into good order by the apostolic pattern. And I pray for very good things over the next three months as we listen to what Paul has to say about the church of Jesus Christ. Well, very briefly today, as we begin to look at this epistle, I wanna look at Paul's introduction And I wanna look at two phrases specifically that Paul uses to encourage Titus in the right way of planting churches and the right way of doing ministry. First of all, after asserting his apostolic warrant at the beginning of this passage, and Paul is flexing his muscles here, Paul knows that Titus is gonna read this and Paul knows it's gonna go to everybody else in Crete. And he flexes those apostolic muscles and he reminds them I'm an apostle here by the command of God. I didn't take this up myself. God gave me this commission. I'm an apostle, and you need to hear this. He says, I've been entrusted with a message that I'm entrusting to you, Titus. And um, after kind of flexing that apostolic authority, Paul begins to provide the correct pattern of ministry. And he begins with this phrase, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. It's the same phrase that Paul uses in 2 Timothy uh, 2. I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now, on the one hand, it's important for us to recognize this afternoon that the doctrine of election isn't on the margins of Scripture. It isn't a peripheral doctrine. It's not some esoteric kind of weird thing that we should avoid at all costs because it's just too hard to understand The doctrine of election is in fact everywhere from the Old Testament to the New Testament and it's fundamental to understanding the gospel and we ought not remain ambivalent towards it. In fact, in the words of our own Anglican doctrines, our articles, Article 17, we read that the doctrine of election is full of sweet and pleasant and unspeakable comfort and we ought to frequently meditate Upon it. You see, Paul begins by reminding Titus that the difficult labor of ministry and church work has a guaranteed reward because it is for the sake of the elect. Everything I do, says Paul, whatever it is I do for the sake of the elect, everything I endure, everything I suffer, all the pains I put myself through, I do it for their sake. Whose sake? I do it for the ones who have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, gave when? Promised when? Before the ages began, he says. It's the same phrase he uses to Timothy. Before God makes the world, God makes a promise. I will redeem He promises, I will restore, I will save, I will perfect a people for myself. I will be their God and they will be my people and nothing on heaven and nothing in earth will be able to stand between us or to nullify my promise. And so the ministry you see with all of its difficulties and challenges is now he mentors this young man is not based on the effectiveness of the preacher. Neither is it based on the docility of the people as if successful ministry can only take place in the absence of enemies. Rather, the effectiveness of church ministry and the effectiveness of church in general is based on the promise of God that he has promised to make a people for himself. I mean, how else is Paul going to take courage in the presence of so much catastrophe? We have this idea of the early church. Whether we we kind of deliberately do it or not, we have this image of the early church that it was just one revival after another. Oh, the apostolic days. If only we could get there. But the apostolic church was a mess. The apostolic church was a catastrophe in some ways. Paul says in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, everyone in Asia has turned away from me. All the churches I planted, all the places I've been, they've all abandoned me. They've all turned away from the gospel I've been teaching them, including, he says, my co-workers, Phygelus and Hermogenes. And when he says that, you know that Paul means my co-workers, these guys. Even these guys turned away from me, he says. Later on in the same epistle, he says, Demas, my co-worker, He's deserted me in love with this present world. And then shortly after, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith, my coworker. He did me great harm. Beware of him. You see, Paul is pounded by betrayal from within the church. Never mind the Jews or the Romans. Paul's being bombarded with stuff from within, inside the church. <laughs> And how does Paul possibly make sense of it all? How does Paul keep going? Everything I do, he says, I do because God has made a promise before the ages began that he will gather a people to himself and he will give them eternal life. And so Paul says, when my eyes look at the church and they see disaster when I'm pierced by betrayal and desertion, when I see insubordination and self-appointed teachers who are teaching things they ought not teach, then I fix my eyes on the promise and I say to myself that God has promised to do something and what God promises to do, he will unfailingly do. Because unlike these Cretans who can do little else but lie, God cannot lie. God will not lie, and God will fulfill his promise. And so God, Paul says, will build his church, even in this mess of an island called Crete, where Titus is having so much trouble. Secondly, and finally today, Paul says, I labor the way that I do, so that God's people may possess knowledge of the truth. And knowledge that accords with godliness. Not just any knowledge here. Don't forget, Paul says to Titus, that the purpose of ministry is to ground people in truth, but not truth that remains out there. Not truth that is like in some art gallery posted on the wall that we can lean back and admire from afar. Paul has no interest whatsoever in building a philosophical system that we can sit back in our armchairs and speculate about. He doesn't care about that. You'll remember what Paul says to those arrogant teachers in Corinth who were te- uh, teaching all kinds of things. And Paul says, I'm going com- to come to Corinth. Josh has been leading through the young adults with this. I'm gonna, he knows what I'm talking about here. I'm going to come to Corinth. I don't care what those guys, those super apostles are talking about. What I want to know, do they have any power in their lives? Do they have power at all? Because the kingdom of God, Paul says, it isn't about talk. (laughs) The kingdom of God is about power. Power to live to God. Power to obey God. Power to live a godly life. Paul isn't interested in the least about feeding the knowledge of armchair theologians. He doesn't care about that stuff. You can fill your noodle with all kinds of facts about God. Paul doesn't care. Paul wants people to know truth that promotes and shapes godly behavior. Truth that makes a claim upon you. Truth that compels you to live in a certain way. This is orthodoxy that affects the heart. It's theology. In the words of that great Puritan William Ames, that's all about living. Living to God. Acting in a certain way making your life different. We're called in the gospel to live a life that's in contrast with the world. We're called to be different, my brothers and sisters, not just to know different things. We're called to be a different kind of people. (laughs) And anytime you walk through the world and you look at how they conduct themselves and you look at their values and what they're all about, you see so very quickly that the world is so full upon itself. It's so drunk upon adoring itself. It's so fixed on gazing on its own image. And quite frankly, we're called to be different. We need a doctrine that will shape us into a different people. And what we'll discover in this epistle to Titus is that the church in Crete was drifting towards lawlessness. It was a church that didn't want to be ruled by God's laws, and therefore it didn't understand the gospel of Paul, which as Paul says in chapter 2, is all about redeeming a people from being lawless. See, the whole problem of sin is that we do not want to be ruled by the law. And the gospel comes to set us free from that plight. And so Paul reminds Titus that the teaching that matters for you, Titus, in this church and for these people in Crete is teaching that accords with godliness, teaching that makes people desire and want to be ruled by the Word. This is one of Calvin's favorite phrases, ruled by the Word. He says, I long to be hemmed in by the mountains of the Word. The Word of God, you see, it comes to us Not just to inform us, but it comes to surround us. To hem us in so that there's no escape from it. And we're compelled by the Holy Spirit to live within its holy limits. And my brothers and sisters, there's no life of discipleship. And there's no real following of Jesus unless you're feeling yourselves hemmed in by the mountains of the word. Unless you feel the Holy Spirit compelling you to live within those limits of the scriptures. And you feel it every day. As you read the word in the morning, and as you read the word in the afternoon, as you meditate upon scripture at night, you feel those mountains hemming you in saying you cannot go that way. And you mustn't go this way. But you must live here. That's the scripture informing godliness. And Titus, Paul says, you are in the midst of a people. They do not want to be ruled. They don't want to be hemmed in. And brothers and sisters, you are living in the midst of a people that do not want to be ruled by the Word of God. And don't be deceived by that. It's so very easy to watch their stuff and to mingle among them and say, I'd like to be like the nations now, Lord. Forget about your rule. Give us a king. Let us be like them. The nations do not want to be ruled by the Word. And you must not be like them in your day-to-day living. Paul says, you must teach them, Titus, doctrine that accords with godliness, being like Christ. And that's a whole different thing than what we see in the world on a day-to-day basis. Titus, they don't want to acknowledge the church, these teachers. Titus, they don't want to acknowledge its apostles, its leaders, its orders. And at the end of the day, Titus, they don't want to acknowledge its gospel, Or its laws. And so, Titus, your job is to teach them to be obedient (laughs) to the Lord. That's the kind of people, Titus, that you need to shape. Not lawless ones, but lawful ones. Teach them, Titus, the truth that leads to godliness. In Christ's church, I say the same thing to you. We must be a people who are determined to be godly ourselves and are determined to make a godly people. And we must not lose hope, even when it seems that everybody is falling away and when catastrophe strikes because God is at work and he's promised to build his church and the Lord will do what he says he will do. And so God grant us today the grace to hear his word and to take it deep into our hearts.